Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. Our scripture reading for this Pentecost Sunday is Acts 2, verses 1 through 13, which, of course, is when the actual miracle of Pentecost is explained before Peter gives the first really evangelistic sermon in the book of Acts. It's interesting to me that, obviously, the Spirit comes on. It vindicates the fact that the Spirit is present with the disciples, as he is still present with us today, by them being able to speak in different tongues, in different languages, be heard, everyone within their own tongue. But what really gets me, and what really amazes me, is that just as there were always two responses that Matthew, in particular, in our study, has brought out time and time again to Jesus. Some saying, well, he's just a little bit crazy. He's got a devil. And others who are actually accepting him. So, too, there is that same dynamic at play in how people respond to this sign of the Spirit's coming. Some are amazed and want to know, what does this mean? To which Peter then gives them the explanation. Others are prepared to mock, saying these are just drunk. So this is what scripture says in Acts 2, 1-13. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. Well, you can go ahead and turn, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 10. We're in verses 26 through 31 today. This discourse has been about Jesus sending out, giving a speech to prepare the twelve for their ministry, and he particularly last week started talking about persecution that they should expect, and particularly seemingly thinking about post-Pentecost persecution, when it is a capital crime to be a Christian. He encouraged faith. He encouraged that there's some elements of it being a good thing, even a privilege, 
and he encouraged the, the, the apostles to believe and to trust God in the midst of it. And within that context, then, he says these words in Matthew 10, verses 26 through 31. Fear them not, therefore. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Father, we do ask again that you would encourage our faith, that the Spirit you sent to all believers would be encouraging us, strengthening us, and causing us to rejoice in you as we worship here today. Allow this not just to be something that we forget by the end of the day, but something that we live by through every single day. Allow us to be stirred on, to continue in the faith, to endure, and to obey you, proclaiming your gospel faithfully. And Lord, if there is someone here today who does not understand and does not believe that gospel, let it come out that today is the day in which they do, in which you draw them to yourself and they have faith. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. There is a book that the Brown household is currently reading called uh, The Rise and Fall of Mount Majestic. It's written by Jennifer Trafton, and the basic premise is kind of funny. There is a giant asleep underneath the whole island, and the reason why Mount Majestic rises and falls is that it's built on top of his diaphragm, and it rises and falls with his rhythmic breathing. But of course, that creates a little bit of a problem as well, because if the giant were to wake up, Mount Majestic, and indeed the whole island, would be thrust into the sea. There is a place called the Snoring Cave. It turns out that it's the Snoring Cave because there's actual snoring going on. And a character called Warhol is tasked with guarding that cave. Warhol is called Warhol the Warrior. And that's not warrior as in one who fights in war. That's warrior as in one who worries. He worries all the time about everything, about his house moving, about getting lost in the woods, keeping his map in the house. He shrinks every time he worries and is now just the height of a human knee. 
bagginess of his clothes shows that that worrying is still an active part of his life. Yet here he is guarding the snoring cave. Now there's another species that's about as off-the-wall different from Warville as you could imagine. They're rumble bumps, and they take everything as a joke. They, everything is a play, nothing is taken too seriously, and they decide that it would be a great idea to wake the giant up. How much fun it could be. Maybe they'd even get to ride in his pockets. Prior to that, they wanted Warble to be their leader. But he's far too worried, far too afraid, far too nervous of his possibility of failing as the leader of the Rumble Bumps to possibly do that. But as soon as they start talking about waking up the giant, he proclaims quite boldly, stop. Now, he realizes then what he's done, and he's getting all very much anxious and worried about the fact that he did such a thing, but he decides it's too late to turn back now. He forbids them from waking up the giant. And when they ask then, if this means he is indeed being their leader, he says, yes. So what happened to all his fear, worry, and anxiety about being the leader of the Rumble Bumps? Where did it go? Is he any less nervous about being a failure and leading them astray? Not really. But he has a greater fear of the giant waking up. And that greater fear of the giant waking up, now that it's in conflict with the fear of being a leader, he operates and acts in accordance with that greater fear. We, as Christians and just as humans, can be afraid of a lot of things. We can be afraid of not being liked. We can be afraid of being killed. We can be afraid of losing our jobs. But the right antidote to those fears is not to think about how unlikely it would be, but to let it be absorbed, swallowed, and ultimately killed by a greater fear. And Jesus tells his disciples just that. You may be afraid of the persecutors, but in that fear, don't be afraid of them, but let your greater fear of God swallow up that fear and allow you to act boldly. And so he teaches them, and teaches us, do not be afraid of men, but in fear of God, proclaim Christ. He provides three reasons to not be afraid of men. The center reason is that greater fear. But it's even more true that at the center is the greater fear in God. As it's subtly behind the scenes in the first and third reason as well. And the first reason is in verses 26 and 27. Do not fear men because you have a message to proclaim. Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered 
that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. Fear them not, therefore. Again in verse 28, and fear not them. And in verse 31, fear ye not, therefore. Three times in the short passage, we get that statement, making it very clear what the primary point Jesus has for us to see. But here he specifically says, fear them not, therefore. And that could connect to all of verses 16 to 25, which talked about how persecution was inevitable, and thus say, because you know to expect it and have certain things you can do to prepare for it, do not be afraid of it when it comes. Or as I think is more likely, it could pertain to just verses 24 and 25. And say, because it is such a great privilege for you to be like your master in suffering, do not be afraid of men when they come and bring you that type of suffering. Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. Say, very short parable has two parallel poetic lines nothing covered that shall not be revealed nothing hid that shall not be known anything that's currently secret anything that's currently covered up with a blanket will be uncovered will be made known will be revealed indeed in other places where we see Jesus using this he makes the point even that the whole reason you would hide something would be to make it known. Like a surprise party. You hide it just so that you can have that moment of yelling surprise and let it be known that this is the case. Nothing that is hidden will stay hidden, but will be made known. Nothing that is covered will stay covered, but will be uncovered. And at least if you're like me, if you read that verse, just verse 26 in isolation, the expectation would be the things that are being revealed are the bad actions of the persecutors and your patient endurance. The idea of a final judgment where God then brings these things into the light and judges every secret thought, every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. But verse 27 takes us in a different direction. The things that are secret that need to be revealed are actually things Jesus is saying. What I tell you in darkness that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. It's again a very, very illustration-packed poetic lines. If you hear it in the darkness, if Jesus tells it to you in the darkness, speak it in the light. 
If it's in your ear that it is said, not just in your hearing, but particularly whispered in the ear would be the idea, proclaim it upon the housetops. Get in a high spot, be there, and shout it out. The images of darkness, the images of whispering, speak of something that Jesus is telling them in private, in secret, but that they are ultimately to proclaim openly in the light on the rooftops. As D.A. Carson writes, in a sense, the apostles were to have more of a public ministry than Jesus himself. That is the primary thing that is covered, that Jesus is talking about being uncovered. His own words and teaching. Which means the basic argument is fear them not because you have a message to proclaim. Fear them not because you have bigger fish to fry. More important things to deal with. And it is logical because our proclamation of the good news would be one of the first casualties of being afraid of persecutors and persecution. Because it is that very proclamation of the name of Christ, that very de declaration of the gospel about how he was going to die at that point and has now died and risen again for our sins that would cause us to be offensive to others cause the disciples to be in danger of their lives, us to be in danger of ridicule, ostracization, perhaps difficulties within our job. And so we are to proclaim, not to fear, because we know the message must go out. And to some degree, we have that motivation because we know how urgent it is that people know and respond. And one of the primary reasons that we keep sending the message out is because it's commanded. And we're more interested in obeying and fearing God than fearing man. And so we keep on proclaiming regardless of the cost, knowing the reality of the second reason, that in verse 28, do not fear men because you ought to fear God. And fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Now it is certainly bad if someone comes through and kills the body. But it is not an ultimate bad. Because the soul, the non-physical, immaterial part of us, that which is our inner self, that is not touched, 
cannot even be seen, and so Baal definitely cannot be hurt by man. The worst that man can do is kill us. And in most settings right now, that's not what people in America, at least, are trying to do to Christians. So it's a simple argument to go from the greater to the lesser, that if killing of the body is not something that we should be afraid of, that we also shouldn't be afraid of what men actually are doing to us. Not to fear that, because our, our souls, our bodies themselves, and our souls would be raised. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to, to destroy both soul and body in hell. It is God and God alone who has that power, not just to destroy body, but to destroy the soul. To not just destroy the material and physical, but the immaterial as well. I would not argue from this verse that there is any sort of annihilationism. It's not that the body and soul cease to exist in hell. It's described as eternal torment elsewhere in Scripture, as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the point is, soul and body both are being ruined, are being destroyed, are being tormented. It's a place of torture, physically and spiritually. If you are confused or uncertain about this discussion of hell, or about how that then comes into play in your own life, and whether you should be really, really afraid of that because that would be where you would be heading, this is what you should know. Everyone in this room and in all the world deserves to be punished in that way. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all done things that are in violation of the Ten Commandments and the law of God and that have spit in his face of all his wonderful good gifts. We've said things that weren't true. We've perhaps taken some things Maybe not things from a store, it was just candy from a jar we weren't supposed to be in. We've all even thought things that we shouldn't have thought. But God sent his son in compassion upon the fact that we would go to this place. And he didn't do those things. And then as God and man, he died upon a cross, bearing the punishment of sin, bearing the punishment that we all deserve. 
conquering death in that moment and rising again. So, anyone who believes in him, anyone who accepts him, anyone who turns from their own sin and even their own attempts at making themselves better and turns to believe in him alone as the hope, he is saved. She is saved. So if you haven't done that, do that today. Know that that is your hope and salvation. But to those of us who have done that, let's be reminded that these words are written to us. We are the ones who are being told to fear God, who is able to destroy soul and body and hell. Not because we are in danger of being destroyed soul and body and hell, but because we need to recognize the power and authority of God and be more afraid of Him and more interested in obeying Him than we are afraid of those around us. But then the main question that comes into that is how can there be a fear of someone you love so much that you're supposed to be enjoying being around? The analogy of fatherhood does help quite a bit. There can be times that even though you enjoy being around your father or even your mother, that you know even then and if you do something wrong that offends them as a child, it might not be very pleasant for you. And so you have that right fear of what they might do. There's also a helpful illustration in thinking about the sun. We love the sun. We, in fact, need the sun's rays in order to give us vitamin D. But if we got too close to the sun, it would be a problem. Or if we even just walked outside and stayed outside for a while without proper protection, we could get burnt. Being fearful does not necessarily mean something is not good or enjoyable. And so it is with God. We are to fear him coming to him with the proper reverence of knowing what he is able to do, and also then have it coupled with the faith of knowing how good and gracious he is to his people. But before we leave this verse, it is significant for us to know that if we are afraid of men, which could so much of being afraid of men not liking us, the right and proper antidote is not to think about how what men do isn't that big, but to remember that fear of God. That as it was the greater fear for Warville that the giant would wake up that allowed him to conquer his fear of being a leader, so a greater fear of God is what would help us if we are afraid of men, if we're acting as people-pleasers, or not proclaiming the gospel because we are afraid someone would reject us, that someone would make our life miserable because of such proclamation.
Charles Spurgeon rightly says, Let us fear the greater, and we shall not fear the less. There is no cure for the fear of man like the fear of God. So with the reality that displeasing God has higher stakes than displeasing man, with the reality that fearing God is so much better given that he is generous and also so much more powerful than man, let us fear him. Let us obey him and boldly proclaim his message. But also note that Jesus balances this fear with the type of trust that we know and love so much. Verses 29 to 31 tell us that we should not fear man because our Father cares for us. the heavenly father who we've previously looked at his provision in Matthew 6 25 through 34 is still active in helping us Jesus says are not two sparrows sold for a farthing and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father but the very hairs of your head are all numbered fear ye not therefore ye are of more value than many sparrows. It's an argument from the lesser thing to the greater thing. Arguing that if God is caring for, if God is providentially in control over the lesser things that are going on, then certainly he is in control and caring for the greater things as well. And the lesser is particularly the sparrows. The assumption is already there that humans are are better than sparrows. That is a simple enough assumption based off of the creation account. It is humans that are made in God's image, not sparrows, not birds. It's clear enough in what we were talking about in terms of Jesus coming as a human God the Son took on human flesh, not sparrow flesh. It's already been stated, as we've seen in Matthew 6, 25-34, that our life is more than what we eat. And that if God cares for the birds, he will care for us. But here Jesus makes the argument based off of how humans value. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? A farthing, according to the translation notes in the New English translation, farthing is a small copper coin that is less than a half hour's average work. So for less than 15 minutes, that's what one sparrow would be worth if two sparrows are worth less than a half hour's wages. I've been up here preaching for more time than that. I spent more time thinking about this verse than that. And yet, that's what sparrows are worth. And yet, the statement is, 
are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. Far from any clockmaker who sets the clock in motion and leaves it by behind, God is providentially working it out such that not even one sparrow can fall to the ground without his knowledge and without his will. Which also is helpful in, from the standpoint of verse 28. When thinking about the limitations of man authority that they can only kill the body, can't do anything to the soul, even their ability to kill the body is under the control of God as we see in Job. The devil comes to God and has to get his permission before he can afflict Job with anything. And if God said no, then Satan would be able to do nothing. Men who go out and try to hurt us can only do so with God's watchful care and permission. Not one sparrow, this insignificant little bird, can fall to the ground without our Father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. That's easier on some of our heads than others. But regardless, God knows this intimate detail about our hair and if he cares enough to know how many hairs are in our head, certainly he cares enough to protect us. Not that to save us from all sorts of suffering, verses 16 to 25 tell us we should expect it, but to keep us, to guard us, and to lead us into a resurrection of body, to keep our souls prepared and ready for that day. It's no wonder, given that God has this sovereign control over details and such uh, knowledge of details about us, that we have the conclusion, fear ye not, therefore. Ye are of more value than many sparrows. the ultimate worth that we have to think about is the worth that is Christ's death. God cares about humanity enough to send his son to die. Christ cares enough about humanity to die. You're of more value than many sparrows. You're worth the death of God's only son. And we're certainly not worthy of the death of God's only son. That's certainly a wonderful grace that he has given to us. But he who did not, uh, did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him graciously give us all things? How would we not be provided for in the midst of the persecution 
that even if we were to die, it would still be all for the best. Fear ye not, therefore. It may not be terribly luxurious or comfortable, but God will provide for all of our true needs, and he will keep us until the end. Are we really going to be more afraid of the men who can kill us at worst, who don't seem to be trying to do that, and cannot do any of that without God willing it? Or are we going to be more afraid of God, coming to him in reverence and awe, learning to obey him in everything? Like Orville, let's learn to let a greater fear crowd out our smaller fears. Let's cultivate an understanding from God's word of how magnificent God is and how gracious he is to us, and let that fear and faith combined push out any fear of man, of what they could do to us or whether they're going to accept us or not. Let us not fear man, but in fear of God, proclaim his message boldly and obey him in everything. Father, I do thank you again for this passage. And I pray that we would be able to rejoice in this more and more. Guide us in all truth. Continue to send your spirit so that he can encourage us, embolden us, and bring us to a healthy understanding of who you are. And I pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>